0: comes from the environment like that's been my observation it's something I like to (laughs) I like to say and I like to remind people like sometimes I, I feel like you know, we just like wake up, we we woke up, we suddenly were aware as living human beings one day, and, and we think that how things are are how things are. I, I think that sometimes, you know, it, we would do well to kind of think a little bit more about where our culture comes from, and it comes from the environment. And so it really is, you know, we as like Native peoples, Alaska Native peoples, you know, as an EPAC person, like how we are and who we are, like we are the imprint and the shape of the state and the place that we live in.
1: That was Cordelia Kaganak-Kelly. She specializes in cross-cultural communications. It's a position that gives her the space and the opportunity to learn about how cultures interact at the community level. For the last two years, she's worked as a special assistant for rural affairs for Senator Lisa Murkowski where she helps to build and strengthen regional and statewide rural and Alaska Native relationships. She says that in her line of work, people often use the term cultural conflicts to describe disagreements that arise because of different values and belief systems. However, she prefers the term cultural contrasts, because not all the time do those things conflict. She gives an example. Whenever her mom's Inupiaq family would visit, She was expected to tend to and revere her elders, whereas when her dad's parents would visit from Washington State, they wanted to tend to the children. She recognized that these behaviors weren't in conflict. Each one just had a different set of expectations. So it's important to learn and to talk about the contrasts before they become conflicts. It comes down to recognizing, understanding, and respecting other cultures their values, and their tenets. Cordelia grew up in Wasilla. The first time she visited the lands of her heritage, Utkiavik and Wainwright, she was a young adult. She remembers seeing the environment that her mom had been describing to her for so long and how striking it was. Her biggest takeaway was seeing other Inupiaq people. It was her first time in an Inupiaq community and so much of it reminded her of her family. It gave her an incredible sense of belonging, because until that point, the only other Inupiaq people she encountered were part of her family. It was the first time she realized that she was part of this bigger network of people. So here she is, Cordelia Kerignac Kelly. Welcome to Chattermarks,
0: a podcast of the Anchorage Museum dedicated
1: to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, Past, present, and
0: and future. future.
1: My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So are you related to the guy who back in January won $3.5 million in the largest jackpot ever in Alaska history?
0: oh yeah that's like an uncle of mine <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah absolutely and so it was just he's such a great guy and it was just like an absolute joy you know um just an amazing community member it was just like an, just so hardworking his whole life um uh just an absolute joy joy to see that outcome so everyone was like celebrating and, and so many more people were signing up for that <laughs> after he won but the thing about alaska though is like Because, you know, so many of us know each other, Um, you're seeing people even win like $100,000 and we kind of, we know those people too. So easily, you know, there's easily about a a few people that people have like directly know who have won via that avenue, so.
1: Yeah. Mm And you have a lot of family in Alaska, right?
0: Yeah, I do. And, and I think that really is, you know, um, being Alaska Native, like we say that we're related to absolutely everybody and there's so much value in our kinship and you you certainly can draw connections to people from, you know, across your own region, certainly, but even, you know, across the state, if you really, if you really wanted to and really tried. So
1: I like that we're related to absolutely everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. That's what people, that's definitely what people like to say. So, and there's just so much value in knowing those kinship relationships. It holds a lot of weight in our communities to know how we are related. Mm -hmm. Like an example is like my family comes from Wainwright. I was born in Wasilla. That's where my parents raised me. My mom and dad met in Wainwright. My mom is a talker from Wainwright. Um, And those rivers, you know, run north, south. So not only are you related to the community of Wainwright, um, my mom has some uncles that, you know moved to other surrounding communities on the slope so now we're related to those villages Mm -hmm. but those rivers run north south and there always has always has been a historic relationship between Wainwright and like the community of Noatak for example in northwest and so because there was a lot of trade and a lot of like intermarriage within that Northwest region. Now it opens up the whole Northwest area yeah. <laughs> of, of relationships. And so I could call a, you know, a, a community and detail you know, my, my kinship to some of the families there. And they'll say, hey, cousin, even though it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's technically a different region than my own.
1: But there's that feeling of kinship that's still there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't, it, it really, um, like, however, quote unquote, distant or however many, like, generations ago the connection might be, or however many times a family member might be, like, once removed or, or twice removed, like, it doesn't disqualify the connection and that there mm-hmm. is a connection there. And once you can establish that connection, your entire relationship with that person just changes somehow.
1: Uh, yeah, I would imagine. You know, I wonder, could you... Maybe explain that a little more that when you understand that connection, that those relationships become more significant.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the difference between like, stranger and not stranger, you know, okay, uh, it, it is, it's a little bit challenging to explain. But I, I think it, that's what happens. I can only describe the switch that happens in my brain. You know, it's like, almost like stranger to not stranger, you understand like their place and connection, in relation to you in relation to your community in relation to the region. And also in relation to really in relationship to like the state. So I, I think that's a little bit of it.
1: What was your understanding of that when you were younger?
0: Let's see. Um, well, when I was young, so I grew up like in Wasilla and it was, uh, it was quite the experience um, growing up there. And then whenever we had relatives come from like the North Slope, um, we would undoubtedly go visit them. And oftentimes mm-hmm. they were coming to a and Alaska uh, Native Medical Center and, or AFN. And so we would, we spent a, I spent a lot of time in the hospital and I was like never sick. It was just, that was the place that we would hang out um, all the time was like at the hospital. And so I, I passed really? the okay. hospital and I, and I just, I grew up there really um, because it was such a gathering place um, for us as like Alaska Native people and connecting with relatives who are living in communities other than maybe the one that we're currently in. And there was always another cousin for my mom. My mom would, you know, kind of take us by the hand and be like, this is your auntie, this is yeah. your own. This is your cousin. And it was really overwhelming um, as a younger youth, but it's just something you're born into. So when you're a small child, you know, your mother's telling this to you and you're trying to put the pieces together. But as you kind of grow into it, you just kind of build that infrastructure. Yourself and really, our family members are have incredible genealogical abilities. Like my mother, um, you know, I feel like I'm spending my whole life trying to catch up um, and and understand the map of my family as my mother other understands it mm-hmm. as my Aka understood it and you know mm-hmm. i have a friend who lost she's my age and she lost her mother mm-hmm. a handful of years ago and i've heard her describe how much she misses her mom because of how much she depended on her mom to know exactly how so and so was related even going like generations back
1: mhm yeah yeah it, um she was the uh kind of the knowledge holder of the family it sounds like
0: mhm yeah absolutely
1: Something you said earlier that that really caught my attention was that the hospital was was such a an important place to you growing up. Why was the hospital such a meeting place? <sighs> Um, it was a meeting
0: place because, of course, it's like, um, like the top uh, health facility for Alaska Native people. It services almost most of Alaska Native people. Um, basically, there's a certain level of care in rural communities, and once you kind of extend past that, the level of care, that is offered regionally, you have to, you know, come to Anchorage for many of your medical appointments. And so Mm -hmm. um, it was just like a regular occurrence. It is, continues to be a regular occurrence for folks living in rural communities who are Alaska Native to come to AMC, receive their health care, And so, and also, again, being, you know, in Wasilla, like we wanted to take advantage of every opportunity that we could, my mother did, um, to see family members. So so did my Aka, my grandma, who lived also in Anchorage. Mm-hmm. And I think it was um, it was so important because it was also like I would kind of pass through like the world that I grew up in in Wasilla and kind of pass into like our own world where everything. Um, everything felt different than the place that I grew up. And it was its own, it was its own world. And it was, it was quite an immersive experience from like the fry bread that you used to be able to get okay. um, to yeah. the, the songs, you know, to the language that was spoken, like the number of times it was the number of times I heard Inupiaq spoken um, and people praying fluently in Inupiaq. So it was a, it was absolutely like an access point for like my Inupiaq and like Alaska Native culture growing up.
1: Wow, that, that, that is so interesting that, you have that relationship with hospitals because i I feel like people usually have nervous energy or fear around hospitals, and it sounds like the hospital was like a community place for you
0: yeah, absolutely, and it really does span um it really does span all of human emotions like like I remember the joy of seeing like new baby cousins being born there mm-hmm. and then also saying goodbye to like very dear and like direct like relatives of mine like all mm-hmm. of my all of my grandparents for example and so you have these very tenuous memories but I think all together that's what really makes it um, beautiful and really makes it special. And then, of course, the fact that many people are coming for relatively minor procedures really enhances the community aspect of it. And, and and to that point, I will say because it was such an access point, you know, the hospital and then also to some extent, you know, AFN every year mm-hmm. of seeing my own relatives. Um, the first time I ever went to Wainwright was when I was 22. I'm, I'm 33 now, so just over 11 years ago. And because you know, I knew my family my whole life because of all of the connection time that we spent at the hospital. Yeah. Um, every every person, every elder who saw me, you know, said like, "Welcome home!" Like, told me, "Welcome home!" Like, "Welcome home to Wainwright," because they recognized like that which is in me, is is from there, um, and we already had these relationships. Um, So I wasn't a stranger. These were my family members. But coming to Wainwright for the first time, I was just seeing my family members in their own home.
1: How do you think all of that has affected your relationship with hospitals now?
0: I, well, when I go to the hospital, I I definitely miss the fry bread. I think they
1: changed the menu uh, quite a
0: bit in their effort to become healthier. And I appreciate that there's uh, an excellent chef and they do wonderful job of providing like nutritional, you know, traditional foods and, you know, like reindeer stews and and things like that. But Mm -hmm. I do I do miss that steady source and access to <laughs> right. fried bread. And, and also like when I go, um, because the number of the elders that you know I grew up with have now passed, um, there's it's also a little bit bittersweet. Mm. It's the same way you know for, for, for my mother like since she lost her mother, you know it's just it's changed the dynamic. the people that you would visit, you know, the elders that you knew aren't aren't around anymore. Um, And so you're now having to kind of reestablish, you know, your own relationship with that place and maybe Mm -hmm. kind of creating that for for younger people um, in the city as they also come up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of fear around hospitals and then my mom became a nurse and then she became a nurse practitioner and then my brother began working in the er and then my wife began working as an analyst and so you know my relationship was with providence in anchorage and it became just another place just another community gathering you know rather than oh my gosh i need to go to see a doctor because something hurts
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It was, again, there's so many times that I went and we weren't even ill. And I mean, sometimes like my mom would take us out of school and that was always like a, a challenging thing, you know, to to kind of explain sometimes to teachers about like why, you know, um, AFN is happening that week and like why you need to kind of like be out the whole week um, mm-hmm. because these were important connection opportunities that were like incredibly valuable and, and still are.
1: When you think of going to the hospital when you were younger and being part of these, you know, these kind of microcosms of community, do any stories come to mind? Yeah, um, I think
0: it's mostly flashes of memory, I think at this point, like strong memories of like, yeah, definitely like, you know, losing people, but also, memories of like hearing people singing and hearing people like watching people dancing and there's still like a dance group that meets there, Mm -hmm. um, at every week. So I think it's, it's really lots of like flashes of, of memories and tastes and smells and and sounds, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. You said you grew up in Wasilla. How often as a kid were you able to visit the Alaska native communities of your heritage?
0: I did not go to my community or the North Slope until I was 21. Okay. Um, so I spent really my entire childhood was in um like Wasilla, the Matanuska-Sysina Valley, you know, going to Costco in Anchorage or the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, once or twice a month, um, just really living that life, you know, not really extending my footprint beyond, um, I think Soldatna or Cantwell to the north. And that, that was my... Essentially that was my whole life. My family, um, we didn't travel much. Like I went to Washington once when I was a baby and once when I was 11. And so my, my entire footprint, my whole life up until I was 21 was between like Soldotna and Cantwell, um, and not having been to a rural community, um, up until then.
1: And what was your impression of those communities before you visited them?
0: When I was like, and when I was a child, and again, this is me speaking as a child, like it was like, I was like, I was very aware of this place up north. I was very aware that we came from this place, um, but it almost felt a little bit like mythical, Mm. you know, like there was, it was absolutely um, a very real and sound place, Mm -hmm. but And so much of us like descended from that place, Mm -hmm. but again, all of my relationship came from this place really came to me through the forms of stories and really through my mother and through my relatives and so it felt like. It really was almost like a mythical place to me, where you've just been hearing, you know, the story of this place your entire life, but a place that you've never, you've never visited, you've never really stepped foot, while still understanding um, the the contribution of what this place um, has been and is to our family. Because, like Mm -hmm. my mother, for example, she grew up on a whaling crew, like my. Appa, my grandpa was a whaling captain and so she grew up on the ice and like living that life and my aka my grandma was you know a whaling captain's wife and so they had their own crew mm-hmm. and same thing with my great grandpa and so on and so forth so they lived that life um and so that was those were the stories that I grew up with and I was incredibly curious about my family like I mm-hmm. remember um I have this distinct memory you know there's a television kind of like always on in the living room and just like sitting with my back to the television and my mom's like in a in a chair and I'm just like at her feet as a child and I'm looking directly at her with my back to the television and I'm just like asking her um stories and and I feel like she had like you know a, a decent rotation of kind of the similar stories mm-hmm. and I knew I had heard all of those but I was really trying to draw from her a story I'd never heard before Um, And I I realized that once I started really getting her on the topic of something like animals, um, it just like unlocked this whole trove of information that my mother just naturally knew about Arctic animals that I, I just, it's not something in my relationship with her and our everyday life in Wasilla I was ever going to know about until I, I've intentionally asked her, it's like when you talk about her life in context, um, you just really saw like everything, all of the information my mom really knew mm-hmm. um, about the, her home, her hometown.
1: Why do you think you were so interested to know those stories?
0: Um, I think it was possibly, well, first off, I mean, it seems really interesting, <laughs> but I, I think also it just really highlighted this incredible contrast with, you know, this, this almost like this pocket or this world that we belong to and that we descended from. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like this this way of being with my sisters and I, my family, my mom, my ACA, and then as we went to the hospital, we experienced it, AFN, you know, annual ASRC meetings, um, but then it was very different than, you know, any of the experiences I had with any of my friends, mm-hmm. right. It's like, or any of the, you know, my neighbors, etc., cetera, living in Wasilla. And mm-hmm. so I think that was what was intriguing to me, um, was noticing that contrast.
1: Growing up hearing these stories about the land or lands of your heritage. Were you ever jealous, you know, that you weren't up there experiencing the things that, for instance, your mom experienced?
0: I wouldn't say what I would say is like, I think like growing up when I was a child, so I really can kind of like, um, like establish my relationship with my identity Like my community and my people kind of in like two segments of my life Mm -hmm. you know the first one the first segment really is from like birth to about 19 years old and that is when I mostly access my culture through my mom through my immediate um, relationships and then from like 19 to now is when I kind of like stepped out on my own Mm -hmm. interning at ASRC for the first time and really building my own relationship with my with my community and so I think in that first segment, I recognized that um, my mother's experience was definitely a challenging one. And I also knew and recognized that my parents you know, raised us in Wasilla um, and chose to raise us in Wasilla because of how challenging those experiences had been for my mother. Okay. And that those challenges were not things that they wanted you know, their daughters to go through. So there was like an intentionality there and, and a decision making, for sure. So I recognize that in a way, that was their way of kind of like, quote, unquote, keeping us safe. So I, I knew that growing up. But then also, as you, you know, again, in the second segment of my life, I'm introducing myself at work as, you know, Cordelia, um, as Clareignac, really for the first time to new people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like those questions of asking where it is that you you know, where it is that you were raised. Um, and that's when you start to, you know, start to feel a little bit of that uh, delineation. So,
1: Yeah. So you're 21. You're having your first visit of this place you've heard so much about. Why is it that you're up there?
0: I, it's because of the ASRC internship program. Um, yeah. So it's specifically because um, I was I graduated from high school at Colony High School. I was living at home. I began taking some classes out at MATSU. Um, I got my AA, my associates of arts degree at MATSU. And so I start looking for the next step. And I find an internship in Anchorage at ASRC in a subsidiary, ASRC Energy Services. And I I signed up for UAA to finished out my degree, the last two years of my college degree, um, and I graduated with a, an English degree, English language and rhetoric and a minor in communication. Okay. And so part of this internship, there was an opportunity, a service opportunity um, for two lucky interns. And it's kind of funny because like the um, the, the senior vice president of shareholder services almost made it as like a, a personal, like a professional growth opportunity. But okay. But basically there is a lucky opportunity for two interns Um to do a presentation and practice their professional speaking skills, and you know, basically self-nominate themselves to go up to Utskalfik for the first time mm-hmm. and volunteer at the Arctic Education Foundation, which is a scholarship at ASRC. Um, their booth at the 4th of July games. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, (laughs) you have a number of interns that are like, oh, this is like, this is the opportunity of of like a lifetime. And that's exactly like what it felt. And that's how a lot of people approached it. For some people, it was an amazing opportunity to go home, go home for 4th of July games. And for others like myself, it was an opportunity to go for the very first time. and. We each had to do a presentation and a PowerPoint, and uh, basically <laughs> um, put our, put forth put forth our, our points about why we should be selecting. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if this, like, coincides with, like, the height of, like, reality television, um, <laughs> but this is, like, why we should be selected um, to be one of two lucky folks to go up to Utah And I did my presentation. I think it was actually three, three of us out of a cohort of about, like, maybe 15 interns. And um, I was one of the three um, who, who went up. And so I went up for a Fourth of July Games 2011, I believe, for the very first time.
1: Oh well that's great. And you said it was Udkadvik, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. It was called Barrow at the time, and and now there's been there's definitely been a name change, and of course many people say, you know, Barrow, people say it's Kevik, it's it's definitely at the discretion of the speaker.
1: And what was your impression of Ut after you visited? You know, we we talked about your impression from you know your family, these stories, but now that you've had this personal experience, you know, what were your thoughts?
0: Well, like, well, f- first I was like absolutely struck by the sea ice. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's like, it's July. And so you have these big floating icebergs like still out there, ice flows, and the, the ice hasn't completely gone out yet. And so just like the environment, like seeing more of the environment that my mother described was incredibly striking. But honestly, I think because I had also seen, you know, so many photos and family photos, um, I had some of the imagery down already. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I really walked away having such a clear understanding and like keener understanding of like. Even just my my own self and our own family my mm-hmm. biggest takeaway so again growing up um my family i felt kind of like relatively insulated we had our family wave um and granted i noticed we're we were different than other families but so are all families kind of different than other families mm-hmm. but as i'm walking around it's Catholic kind of like, i don't know i'm seeing other Inupiaq people this is my first time In an Inupiat community, (laughs) okay, okay, Um, and I am seeing like um, a neck that looks exactly like my sister's neck, you know, and I'm seeing like a shoulder that looks exactly like my mom's shoulder, Um, and. I'm realizing, it was my first time really realizing that we are just part of this bigger web and like mm-hmm. this bigger network of people in a way that I had just like not really realized before kind of growing up in my relatively somewhat more isolated experience in Wasilla.
1: So how how did you think about your people before you went there? You know, you said that you're recognizing the similarities between you know these body parts of of your family and these parallels like it sounded like to me that you hadn't experienced that before
0: yeah like not in math You know, like imagine, I know, like like, like, pick a town, like think of your own family and the distinctions of your own family, the specific traits of your mother, your father, how perhaps, you know, you and your siblings, if you have them all kind of like look at each other, look like each other. Mm -hmm. And then just like pick a location in Alaska and you go to that town and the entire town looks specifically like your family (laughs) and laughs like your family and talks like your family. I mean, there were traits... Like I there are so many traits about the way that I grew up that I did not know were any back at all until <laughs> I, I kind of came into that experience, like the way. That we like the cadence of our humor like the way that we laugh the way that we joke yeah. you know my, my, my father went to work every day so we stayed you know home with my mom so we spent a lot of time with my mom mm-hmm. um I mean just even the expectations of like okay after dinner there's this silent expectation that we come to the kitchen ta- you know kitchen table we play cards we laugh mm-hmm. like the cadence of our humor I would go on to find that that is like an back way of joking or like an <laughs> back way of like laughing or like like kidding with each other and I would see yeah. other people do that and I think that was what was so eye-opening was to see like my people in mass to see like this broader web of connectivity and, and network um, that I just I was not really you know aware of because again all that was all the Inuit people that I would met up until that point were just like were directly related to my own family. Okay. So it could have just been that these traits were just my family but that's when I realized like oh these are... Any back things? Is there any back trees or Alaska native trees?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I would imagine you just got this a possibly overwhelming sense of belonging.
0: It was, in, yeah, it was an incredible sense of belonging, again, like this, this, this network. And I think as I continue to like evolve and learn more um, about like our relationships and our connectivity between communities, it's a belonging that just has like increasingly grown um, really over time. And you really do feel synonymous with the fabric of, you know, of Alaska and many of these places.
1: Mm hmm. On social media, you referred to the vibe in rural communities as rural energy. Can you explain what rural energy means?
0: Yeah, it, I, again, this is just again through through my perspective, and um, again, someone who's like not grew, I did not like grow up in a rural community, but I think I wrote that because there is like a distinct. It's a distinct vibe and a distinct energy. And it could be that it is also just like contrasting with the urban energy that I feel here in town. Okay, Um, But I I definitely, yeah, I definitely feel like when you go to more like rural places, um, there's like... You know a different pace like people will talk about like the pace of things being a little bit differently different um some people will talk about uh maybe like some of the values um uh, like what people prioritize and place you know value on might be a little bit different and then of course um the activities that people do really make the the five the of the place feel um uh, really different than the energy that it is that you kind of might experience around anchorage hmm
1: I read that your family has lived in Alaska's Arctic for 10,000 years. That's, and I had to Google this cause I'm really bad at math. So I hope this is correct, mm-hmm. but that's 500 generations of people. And that's something I think the average person, including myself, can't even comprehend.
0: Oh yeah, I think like that's probably from a, a my old LinkedIn bio. I haven't really updated that in some time, but um, I think like some people will say that at least like Inuit people have been here for at least five thousand years. I know that um, like First Alaskans Institute, the motto is like progress for the next ten thousand years, kind of uh, connecting with like the, the the span of time that many are. are that native people are thought to have like generally been here in Alaska. And I think specifically the wave of Inuit is about, um, about 5,000. So that still is a long, long, long time.
1: Yeah, it is. How do you think that that affects your relationship with Alaska?
0: You know, I culture comes from the environment. Like that's been my observation. It's something I like to <laughs> I like to say and I like to remind people. Like sometimes I, I feel like, you know, we just like wake up, we we woke up, we suddenly were aware as living human beings one day and, and we think that how things are are how things are. I, I think that sometimes, you know, it, we would do well to kind of think a little bit more about where our culture comes from and it comes from the environment. And so it really is... You know, we, as like Native peoples, Alaska Native peoples, you know, as an E.P.A.C. person, like how we are and who we are, like we are the imprint and the shape of the state and the place that we live in. And and really, you know, people who live here for some time um, may even, you find that those who come, who've come here might even really evolve um, in evolve in um, relation to how Alaska has impacted them and might find that over time they might be find some similarities with Alaska Native values. One, mm-hmm. one story I once heard is from a gentleman who moved to you know southeast and he lived there for about 40 years and he told a story about how once he was in This really precarious climbing situation with two other gentlemen. They were hiking this mountain, and all of the wrong things happened. And then basically, they're on the side of a mountain awaiting rescue for about three days. Oh, Um, man. And they said that if – it was absolutely dire, but they said that if they weren't, like, just cracking jokes, like, silly jokes the whole time, and if they Mm -hmm. didn't just, like, keep themselves, like – good humor and good spirits, um, they really, he really contends that he would not be here today. Mm -hmm. And as he was telling the story, I was really thinking about like, yeah, like humor is one of our values, like our Alaska native values. And it's always been said that these are also like, these are survival values. Right. And it's like, it's not like we, you know, um, thought like, what are some good values and then wrote them down and then decided to live by them. Mm -hmm. Like we, again, culture comes from the environment. So these are values that have really emerged in relationship to people's being on this land in relationship with these mountains, these waters, you know, like this weather. um, And that's what we've really found to be what's made us most successful in this place.
1: Mm -hmm. Something that came to mind when I was thinking about this question or maybe even when I read that your family has been in Alaska for 10,000 years, and I'm really just trying to wrap my mind around, you know, such a long period of time. I, I kept thinking of, you know, if you've heard any stories about your ancestors, maybe just one that comes to mind, maybe one that's been around for about
0: 10,000 years. Yeah, there's there's one I've directly <laughs> heard. Um, there's one I've directly have heard that is directly related to like one of my family members, and it is about like four or five generations back, Monique um, Suck and Sue and they lived at a time that was before you know western um really western you know contact as it's called and mm-hmm. they lived before guns like they lived completely traditionally mm-hmm. and um it's essentially a story of how they like loved each other even though they were not supposed to marry there was the the medicine healer had you know decreed that Sue would marry somebody else um and then the the medicine healer the, the shaman kind of or as some people call but we say unakuk um, mm-hmm. um there's like good unakuk um, um, cook um, there's bad, I'm not cooked, as we say. And so the, the good one, uh, anyway, she put like a, a kind of like a spell, so to speak, as, as I was told on um, Sue Blue Rook. And basically, like, when ever, um they came together as like man and wife, she would become like a bear. She would turn into a bear. Like, okay. And then what happened, or he would actually turn into a bear. And then one night, you know, there feeling very amorous, but then he turned into a bear and like ripped her to shreds. Um,
1: oh, okay. And then he was
0: like mourning this, but in the morning she walked in like nothing had happened. He was like, oh, that's odd. And then a couple days later they were out hunting. Again, you know, Mike Suck was like, wow, my wife is so amazing. She can like hunt caribou with a bow and arrow on her own. And yeah. she can like pack it so well. Yeah. So she's packing up these caribou on a sled. Um, and then she he was like, wow, He started feeling amorous again, and she started turning, and he started turning into a bear. But then she put like a a a bow and arrow, like put a bow at his throat, and was like, "If you ever do that again, like rip me up to shreds again, you're gonna like pay pay the cost." And it's something about like how she stood up for herself, I guess, is what broke Mm -hmm. the curse. So that's like about four generations back. Um, But really, like the more you learn about our communities, especially as like an Anybuck person, I'm in. Inuit person, you really start to also understand the connections that we have between, like, the Inuit people in Canada and then also in greenland and then there also are a number of communities that you could you know read through texts and hear stories from folks um, communities like unactivic paths for example who still you know have the the oral recollections of what it was like um to interact with animals during the ice age like interact with like mammoths for example and what it was Mm -hmm. like to hunt mammoths and Mm -hmm. um, many of those ice age stories that were from about like 10 or fifteen thousand years ago
1: yeah yeah I, i i uh I just wonder what that looked like. You know, that's such a huge animal. (laughs) And Alaska can have such an inclement climate that those people were just so strong and so resilient.
0: And also like you know, values that we have of cooperation. I mean, to take down a mammoth, uh, as it's described, it took incredible teamwork and incredible mm-hmm. you know, coordination. And like when the mammoths ran, um, it just felt like the ground was shaking, uh, is my understanding. And so you definitely have to like tag team uh, with spears and coordination to take a mammoth down.
1: Yeah. What do you think when you hear a story about a distant relative whose life looks so much different than yours does
0: like it like in what sense like somebody who's like living in a rural community today
1: i guess i'm thinking of like a distant relative you know like uh someone who is a hunting a mammoth you know and and i and where this question comes from is i don't know what my family was doing ten thousand years ago you know I, I barely know what my family was doing 200 years ago mm, and so mm-hmm. i think that that's where my interest in this comes from Because if I, if I picked up a book or if I were to talk to an elder and, you know, learn about such distant relatives, distant ancestors, I I would just, you know, uh, I I have a feeling that that's like all I'd be doing. I would just be obsessed with it, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I've been able to pick up different cues and different parts of stories from different things that I've heard from elders and also things that I've read of people who recorded stories um, of elders in like the 50s and and the 60s. Um, And so, I mean, really so much of life, I think really kind of looked similar to like how people are, are living Um, you know today or or not that um, long ago in the sense that people really followed the animals like they followed the migration patterns and, and that was like literally what people did and so that determined their they're definitely their entire year. Um, and my understanding is that there is a technological um, advancement. There is a new group of people that kind of came and there's a t- technological advancement, I think about like 1,200 or 2,000 years ago. And that brought like whaling technology to people in Alaska and on the North Slope. So we've always had technological advancements too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then that was um, something that people started doing. There's a lot of connectivity between different regions of Alaska, like extensive trade networks. Um, I was in Anuktufic Pass a few years ago um, on a work trip. I had some friends there. And so we kind of like went on a walk. And Anuktufic Pass is a community in the Brooks Range, and it's the home of the Nunamu, which is like the inland Inupak people. And one of my friends was like, hey, come by my house. Um, and so I did, and he had stacks of tackle boxes. And, and one of them, he opened it, um, and it was this arrowhead collection. and His favorite arrowheads that he found were made of obsidian, which is volcanic glass. And there's no volcanoes in Anaktoufik Pass. (laughs) Like this obsidian had been passed from hand to hand, you know, from 700 miles, essentially. Okay, Um, okay. I made a friend from uh, Canada, like central Canada, (laughs) um, a few years ago at an Arctic... um, Indigenous event here in Anchorage. Mm-hmm. And once our Facebooks connected to Ancestry DNA, we found that we were relatives from four to eight generations back through Ancestry. So at some point, some relative of mine, you know, traveled over to Canada and like settled over there. Um, but there also was, there are also our stories of going back and forth from Alaska to like Canada over to Greenland. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the last people who did that. Um, traditionally by dog sled it was somebody who was danish who grew up in greenland also of inuit descent and he came over from greenland to alaska in like 1921 um nud rasmussen and in five years right and so people mm-hmm. had this remarkable ability to travel great distances and through using traditional means and and there's some cool articles from even the last couple of years about how in the Seward peninsula there were some venetian glass beads that were found um and because they traveled here through the Silk Road, mm-hmm. you know, you had the Great Silk Road go th- all through um, Eurasia, and there is an incredible access point by Kotzebue called Tesolic, And that mm. really was the international trade um, connection point between Alaska and Asia for the import and export of goods. Like it said in our area, up in, the nor- up in the northern area, like we had goods from like, western society easily like 150 years before we ever had contact because of trade like we had some metal goods we had like tobacco and 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 you know metal knives and some pots and pans and things like that because of these extensive connections so Mm. and then of course we had big trade fairs um, for for the purposes of trade um in a few key key places and these places are still known so again like sisolic you know in kotzebue or up in by newixit you had you know, Niglik, which was a huge trade area. And you it was basically, you know, throughout the year, people had you know wars and and relationships. So generally, so sincerely, international relations, right? You have these nations in Alaska and um, with their relationships and and their wars. And um, you know, sometimes people would like wave the white flag for a couple weeks out of a year, where you have varying nations coming together to trade. So maybe mm-hmm. if you're an inland you know person, you bring you know moose hides and like moose meat, but your diet might require um vitamins from products from the sea, and so you're. You know, Mm -hmm. trading for seal oil because of the specific nutrients that you can find, you know, in seal oil to kind of create that balanced diet. And so people really found trade as a way to, you know, round out and balance, um, you know, their diets and their their nutrition and building relationships.
1: Wow, you really have (laughs) an incredible amount of knowledge about the historical... Or i guess the history of trading in alaska
0: <laughs> it's so interesting yeah <laughs> but like also <laughs> wouldn't you want to know like wouldn't you want to know especially if you weren't like taught this in school yeah absolutely <laughs> because i can recall easily what like 30 45, years of history from like the rest of the world mm-hmm because of my education I I couldn't talk to you about like easily like a good thousand years of you know iterations to cathedrals and I just the whole rest of the world but um just wasn't taught like a single bit of this um of in or in my school experience and so um kind of once you realize all that you have not learned I think that is definitely probably the what has instigated my own interest
1: think that we are on a course as far as educational institutions go on a course to educate students about that history are are we getting closer to that
0: You know i think that there has been um more interest and again i am speaking on behalf of my own experience there are many 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 educational professionals who like live and breathe this but Mm -hmm. as a as an observer somebody who was like casually watching the trends of um of what it is to be an alaska native community member you definitely see a call for more not even just more history, but just history point blank. And, and I say yeah, that because yeah. like I graduated in 2007 and I think there was a, an Alaska history course that was implemented the year after I graduated so like I didn't even get Alaska history you know nothing about Russians or really the year that we were you know like bought so to speak and, and so like you know even just Alaska history anything about like our, our governors or mm-hmm. the influx of Alaskans pursuant to World War II you know much less angsa and that just wasn't part of my educational experience but you're definitely seeing more of a call for you know, Alaska history. And that also includes like Alaska native history because mm-hmm. of the span of time that people who are indigenous have, have lived here. Like, for example, all of what I've described to you is like accessible information because I found it. Yeah. <laughs> and that is information that could be included um, when people talk about like the history of this place.
1: When you were in high school and you, you said that you didn't have an Alaska history class. I remember because I graduated in 2006 and I remember taking an Alaska history class my senior year. So maybe they were just starting to implement it um, and maybe you you just missed it. I'm not sure if it was introduced to your school or not.
0: Yeah, it it could have been, and I think I recall that there was one coming online the year after Meese, but okay. maybe it was um, kind of coming in about that period of time. So, but I guess I've also heard that even with you know additions, I think I do hear some um, calls to strengthen the curriculum that is taught.
1: So. Do you think education has changed your life, and maybe in what ways? If, if your answer is a yes yeah
0: I've, oh I've, I think it like created my life
1: okay I think okay. It, like
0: made my life <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I I honestly I honestly do you think it and I think about you know education really broadening to information and whether it's like self Self-informing, um, you know, learning from your community members and communities, yeah. um, and I, I think probably like this, the single greatest, like most significant, <laughs> um, one of the most significant, I think, moments as like a young person goes back to when I was that intern. Um, mm. I'm, I'm basically like I just completed, you know, high school, and my, and I'm just transitioning into. You know, my adulthood, I'm coming into my own. I'm introducing myself as like Kirnyak and my own for the first time as my own person, not just my mom's daughter um, or my grandmother's granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And and I remember seeing this one like pamphlet while I was working at my regional corporation. And it said like, this corporation was created, you know, pursuant to the Alaska Native Land Claim Settlement Act, um, signed into law December 18th. Like 1971 mm-hmm. um and just like the moment that that was for me it's it's almost like i was in like the truman show or something <laughs> if you remember <laughs> if you kind of like remember that movie it's like you're living yeah. one life and you actually realize that there it's this whole other world that you didn't even know was there and it was mm-hmm. created you know there's the world that you're living in was created, you know, in, intentionally by these other dynamics, by these other people that are informing your life, um, I think that's probably the closest analogy I could create. And I, I think like, feeling like you're in the Truman Show, I just knew that I, whatever it was I felt that day, I just never wanted to feel like that way again. Like, I mm-hmm. just I never want to feel like that, like caught off guard or, like that, like uninformed about like my own life, because here I was like working at my corporation and it was, this corporation is what was providing my scholarship funding to go to college. It Mm -hmm. was by source of my paychecks. It was like, I was supporting myself through this this organization And also, like I said, it was another opportunity for me to connect annually with my relatives at like the annual meetings or the caucuses Mm -hmm. at AFN. Um, And so it was like this huge impact and again, all the way down to like the monthly newsletters that we got. Um, But like I never, like I never thought to, it just was what was there. Mm -hmm. And I never thought to like examine where this even came from Um, and recognizing that this was all created because of a piece of like legislation mm-hmm. um, it just made me realize that there's a start and there's a beginning to like absolutely everything and if I could find the origin for like for my or like my corporation, then maybe I could find the origin for like everything else that I had experienced and seen and like known in my life as like an Alaskan native person. Again, things mm-hmm. that were not taught to me. And if I asked, even if I asked around, maybe some people I asked might not even know what the answers were. And so I think that's what really set me on my path to try to find, find out those answers, you know, for myself and like why things are the way that they are and why my life looked the way that it did, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, down to why, like what is blood quantum? Like what is a CIB? Like I was born mm-hmm. and I my whole life I've had this certificate of Indian blood. Like where does that come from? Again, that also comes from legislation. You know, my experience as a shareholder comes from legislation. I'm a tribal citizen. And my tribe was created pursuant to the Indian Reorganizational Act of 1934. Another piece of legislation, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to—I actually created a list for myself <laughs> of experiences <laughs> that I wanted to have when I was 21 to have like this 360-degree, you know, um, perspective at least of my own region as much as I could, right? And I—that yeah. list meant. I wanted to work at a native corporation. I wanted to work at something state, something federal. I wanted to do something tribal. I wanted to do something with education, language, and culture. And because of of, um, industry in my region, something to do with like resource development. Mm -hmm. And that's what I spent my entire 20s (laughs) doing, was trying to just like, I just burned through my 20s, just trying to like learn as much as I could. Again, figuring out why things are the the way they are um, and kind of checking the boxes on all of those experiences.
1: So you are good at research. Is that safe to say?
0: Google is for free. <laughs> so that's always like a good resource. And I have a, a well-worn library card. And I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's, it's an interest. And it's just something I definitely like lean into and trying to find scraps of information and, and more scraps that kind of connect with those scraps. So,
1: Yeah, I, I feel like I have... With certain things that I I know a lot about, you find that a lot of that information is available online. But then, you know, the more you know about a subject, the deeper you want to go. And that information can be a little tougher to find.
0: That's absolutely true. And that kind of brings me to one of my um, side hobbies. Like, Mm i just so love like looking through at any of like Alaska's obscure bookstores or just okay always on the hunt and the pursuit for books that I have not yet seen about Alaska or like specifically like our Arctic communities because that's my region of, of primary focus and where my family comes from. Yeah, um, And I have another friend and we've for many years have been on this pursuit, like if we ever hear of like a cache of books that we have not yet gone through like an estate yeah. sale, like we've like flown to other places just to go, you know, look, check out, you know, a lead or follow leads for like months and months and months on end. Um, just because there are some books that maybe, are that are, there are many books that have been printed that are out of print and sometimes mm-hmm. you don't even know what is out there until you're kind of flipping through an estate sale. You see something you've never seen before that has information you've never heard of before. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you look at that bibliography Mm -hmm. and you see, Mm -hmm. okay, here's, here's the next list of what I need to find because this, these are the original sources that they use. So I have my own personal library collection that um, (laughs) (laughs) is probably one of my uh, favorite possessions. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) Can you think of any of the books, maybe, maybe the most recent book that you've discovered?
0: You know, I think one of them is, is something I've like referenced here. Um, like when I said, I've kind of pieced together some stories from people who maybe lived with our people in like the 50s and 60s. I was specifically speaking of this one, thinking of this one book mm-hmm. um, from somebody who spent time with the Nonami on Anaktivik Pass. And it was um, a scholar from Yale and he lived with Anaktivik Pass, in Anaktivik Pass for a couple of years in the 50s. And he wrote all of what he saw, he was an anthropology student. I have to go take look, take a look at the title in the next room. Um, it's like a year with the Non-Ami or something like that. I mean, okay. they all kind of sound like that, um, but it's, it's really remarkable because in that book, he captures stories of, again, like hunting with mammoths. He talks about, you know, the great flood. Many indigenous story, people have stories of the great flood because of the melts, like all of the meltwater when things warmed up after the ice age, mm-hmm. Um, how we had to like contend with giant shrews. That was a huge problem.
1: Okay, wow. They were
0: like the man killers and man eaters. <laughs> and so we had to, those are <laughs> something we always had to like, you know, keep, keep an eye out for, you know, even yeah. to stories like we. We have like two two bodies of stories um and and one is like kind of like mythological stories and one is like verified facts and and truths and, and things like you know what i've described about the mammoths and you know the giant shrews like those are you know things that um were described as being like real like historic accounts of how people interacted you know with the surrounding areas you know all as far back as like the ice age
1: mm-hmm
0: and I, and I honestly, there's some things that like the giant shrew, I had not heard about until I found that book. So again, yeah. you're really having to look kind of like, you know, for your own history, sometimes, you know, you're piecing together, kind of like scraps and shreds <laughs> of what it is you find over the past few years. And I think I mean, I really started looking ever since I was 19. I'm, I'm 33 now. And so any any semblance of like, what it is that I know, I think has just been through through this process that I, I think I have maybe an okay like first pass, but oh my goodness, there's so much knowledge out there. So, I mean, you could really spend the rest of your life just like learning about your own um, people and your own
1: history here in Alaska. Have you thought about writing a book yourself?
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. and And I think like, you know, before we started recording, we were kind of talking a little bit about how... You know, sometimes you'll have like an idea, something will kind of come to you and you know, keep like looking around, see if someone else will will kind of do it and and yeah. That just doesn't really really happen. Hasn't really happened. And I think like you know, I think like past like several years I've really me really keenly been looking at like culture and like what culture is and how culture comes from the environment. And I think with like a really heavy um, heavy look at you know spe- specifically communication and communication styles and um, yeah and I I I really think that it's just something that I feel like I just want to like get out almost like a pensieve like it's just in my head all the time mm-hmm. you know it's no- you can talk to me and it's just something that's just never too far from beneath the surface. Like it's, mm-hmm. you just kind of scratch a little and I just kind of go off. <laughs> and I, I just want to like put it like want to want it to exist outside of myself because I, I feel like there's like a space, um, whether it's like in cross-cultural communications, um, mm-hmm. or just kind of like broader discourse about like culture and society and American society like I feel like there's a space um for there to be more like literature in that realm and I just I haven't really I don't really I haven't really seen a lot of folks talk about like culture in the way that I know that I the culture has presented itself to me you know mm-hmm. I, I know that there's like Father Oleska for example has done some really great work talking about like cross-cultural communications and and I mean honestly you talk to like any you know Native Native person, and because we grow up in experiences with, you know, such high contrast between like our indigenous ways and then also like dominant society, like you know, you could verbally talk with any person, and these are things that people kind of just like know individually. But when mm-hmm. it comes to these individually known or community, communally known truths, um, there's just not a lot of written material. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I guess one example, and I, I wrote an essay about this. Um, Example of what I'm talking about is like back to again when I'm like an intern um, in my regional corporation, introducing myself as as Kiernyak for the first time, and I remember somebody asking me like, "Oh, what's your back name?" and I said um, Cordelia. Or sorry, sorry, no, it's not. I said <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, Okay, I know Cordelia is not a common that common of name, but it's not an Inuit name. <laughs> that's not the story <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> okay so what's um what's your need back name and I said Kilinyak. and they're like oh is that like your real name or no, is that your birth certificate and I was like uh no and then they said oh so oh so it's like not your real name um and just feeling really like hurt by that but not really Um, able to really yet understand why that was so painful but it's Mm -hmm. it's really like minimizing and it makes you feel kind of like uncertain or unsure like how strongly you can posit that something's your your name in a situation like that if you're not completely confident in yourself Mm -hmm. and they kind of like fast forward I was also, again, learning about some of my region's history for the first time, like Project Chariot, which is when, like, the U.S. um, Atomic Energy Commission wanted to detonate, like, create a deep water port in Mm -hmm. Point Hope, um, or 30 miles from Point Hope by detonating, you know, like, five atomic bombs. And I was so startled by this knowledge that I had not learned before. I was telling, you know, anyone I could... um, anyone I could meet I'm very interested in knowledge if you, mm-hmm. <laughs> in history, if you haven't picked up yeah and I remember you know I, I feel like I can decently kind of like read and sense people um and I remember like bringing that up to folks and this is something that is still within like living memory of yeah. residents like people know that this has happened just as people remember that Spice Girls happened or yeah you know, <laughs> okay okay this is like way more you know way more um you know, like traumatic, so it's not a comparison at all. I, I do not compare those two things, but in the sense that it's something that has come to pass that you remember as a living person, right? It's just yeah, it's yeah. a known fact as a living person, and so I can kind of see like the disbelief when I, you know, would mention this, and then I remember this one time, I just happened to say, "Oh, but there's a book about it," and
1: mm-hmm. like the firecracker immediate, boys, right?
0: Firecracker boys, right? Yeah. And like the immediate switch that that person I was speaking to had once I said there's a book about it Mm -hmm. and like to me that was like a connection in my mind of like oh like there's validity in like what I'm saying because those things are written down it's because Mm -hmm. of writing it's because of like the value of writing Uh, but that really kind of posed a number of questions for me as like a young person (laughs) especially trying to figure this out Mm -hmm. um, because our people come from like an oral culture and um a lot of our conventions are, are oral and so it really kind of like raised questions of like of validity um like what knowledge counts and who decides as it's as it's been described and i think i've spent a lot of time um thinking about how the in like the realm of the intangible really impacts the tangible um mm-hmm. and so it really comes down to even you know something like like confidence um if you you know receive messages throughout your life from, you know, dominant sphere, for example, that something is not like real, is there overall a possibility of there being like an impact to you, than not believing that that's real and having those cultural components really disintegrate those cultural ways of being if you're not staunchly, um, like staunchly confident in them Mm -hmm. another way that that kind of extends is like our practices of adoption um we are very adopting people but it's not always going to be like written down in the way that you know you know the government adoptions are written down Mm -hmm. like i have an auntie from bethel and she has adopted me and she'll tell everyone that i'm her niece and people ask her how we're related and she'll just say because i said so (laughs) and she'll just be really staunch that people just don't question it But again, if you start to think like, oh, we're not really, oh, that's not really my auntie, then because of the messages that you sometimes receive, um, then those conventions really could be potentially like at risk. So I think, you know, those are the types of things that are always really interesting to me. Again, how the realm of the intangible, like messaging, microaggressions, you know, confidence really might have like tangible impacts to the way people are. Yeah. And I think that just also comes to me because of like, Growing up, there was just a lot of like contrast in my house, too, just between, you know, my dad's side and my mom's side. So I think I've always been kind of like looking out for that and just trying to trying to make sense of that.
1: Earlier, you mentioned cross-cultural communications, and I was actually looking through your job history on LinkedIn. And most of the jobs you've had over the years have had to do with cross-cultural communications, Because you've held so many of these positions, it seems intentional.
0: I, you know, I think that definitely a lot of the jobs I had were connected with the checklist that I created for myself. Yeah. So like, I wanted to do something state. So I I worked in the legislature for a session. I wanted to do something, you know, federal, which brings me to like my my current position. And wanted to do something with education. So I worked at like Ilisovik for a while and and language and culture. And but I think like, you know, I think it's it. I've been told that I have like strong communication skills. It was what I was always good at in school was like reading and writing, mm-hmm. um, and the communications part. So I think it's really connecting you know, those interests and like those strengths. Um, But I think, because of those things, it put me in a position to see contrasts very sharply, or very keenly, or to be consistently in environments where the contrasts were very, very, very clear. And I know, like, often people say, like cultural conflicts. um, But like, sometimes things don't conflict, they just like contrast. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the space that I'm interested in. It's like, how do we really become so aware of just what, you know, the contrasts even are that we're comfortable talking about them so that we don't get to a point that they, that they conflict where we can be so self-aware. Like I recognize I have a culture, you know, even to the point of like, I have a culture here, my 10 cultural, you know, tenants and my values. Mm -hmm. And I recognize this other person has a culture and I know enough about them to know their cultural tenants. And because of these two sets of tenants, I know that we are going to interact like this. And it's, it's almost like, it's almost predictable. It's almost like an, you know, an equation, so to speak. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's, I think probably all of this positions is what kind of has given me, you know, that space to consistently see how cultures interact specifically with my own culture, um, you know, American dominant Western culture, whatever you want to call it um, mm-hmm. at the community level. It's giving me a lot of fodder. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll be in positions and maybe like people are uncomfortable and I'm like this is so good. Like <laughs> I'm like thank you. <laughs> I'm writing an essay about this tonight. <laughs>
1: Can you give me an example of a cultural contrast?
0: Oh, oh yeah. Like, I mean, like some of the the earliest ones, just, you know, even like different ways of being, you know, like we can just start, start there. Like some of just like the cultural differences that I saw just even as like a child or different conventions that people might have. So like growing up, um, I think some of my valuation began noticing that whenever my mom's family came over who are any back from the North Slope, you know, we are expected to, you know, you know, do things for them kind of you know, attend to them, make sure that they mm-hmm. had coffee, their elders, you know, and the way we revered our elder, revered elders and took care of them um, was different than when my father's parents came over from Washington State.
1: Mm-hmm. It,
0: was, it was a different set of expectations. It was a different relationship where they wanted to kind of do everything for us as like, as the children. I remember um, standing in the kitchen. I was actually sitting on the counter, so I must have been a small child, and I'm just like like, baldly looking at my grandmother, who is washing the dishes. <laughs> like, <laughs> just washing. I'm watching this elder wash the dishes. You know what I mean? I, I must have been, like, four or five. And I, I, you know, for some reason, that just really struck struck me. I mean, we would do those things for my Aka. Like, we would clean my Aka's house. We would bring mm-hmm. my Aka food. Like, it was just very much a contrast. And I and I think because of the, the contrast that we found, that I saw my family, you know, as a child, that's probably where that interest really kind of evolved from.
1: Yeah. So you're currently the special assistant for rural affairs for Senator Lisa Murkowski. What does that job look like?
0: yeah so that's what I currently do and I also want to preface that you know everything that I'm sharing it's definitely in my personal capacity and um my opinions absolutely reflect my own and and not in my employers but I think Mm -hmm. that it's like a position that I came to um probably again out of curiosity like it is something that is all-encompassing and so it kind of also goes back to the way I've been spending like the last 10 years trying to cross off my checklist of getting experience in like every possible realm that i could again from Mm -hmm. resource development to language and culture you know i worked in tribal education so to me that was like education but also learning about something tribal working within my corporation Um, and then also this being kind of like a a federal component to continue my education about alaska and our communities and um, i think with really looking also like communities across the state, because through my experience in my 20s, like something I've spent a lot of time working on with my friends and friends who have become coworkers or colleagues is um, like language and language revitalization. And Mm -hmm. my friends and I have worked to like build relationships with other Inupiaq communities, you know, across the other, across other Inupiaqs, you know, predominantly speaking regions. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what's kind of like grown you know, your own interest, my own interest and, in, and in just kind of like learning more about, you know, the state as a, as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so again, I spent a lot of time learning about my region comprehensively, but, um, now looking at, you know, just understanding like the state as a whole.
1: On January 1st of this year, you made this post on social media about how last year in 2022, you paid closer attention to what made you feel alive as an individual Mm -hmm. you went on to enumerate a number of things including going on walks reading meditation live music and living slowly did you make that post because at a certain point you realized that you weren't paying attention to what made you feel alive
0: i wow you really do your research
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man! <laughs> um,
0: you know, I think that really like that came out of a place of, I gosh, there's so many people I think had perhaps a, a similar sense, and I can't really get that with my friends, like coming out of the pandemic, um, and really just like sitting with yourself for a year, for for two years, like just yourself, and. And you know, I think that like it's it is really easy to be pulled in a number of like different um, different directions. For example, um, there are a number of things that I'm told that I'm good at that I should do, and mm-hmm. boy, does that sometimes really contrast with what feels like my uh, like how I feel innately. Um, and for example, I, <laughs> I I definitely have. Um, gosh like I you know speak publicly for a living and I'm a solid introvert (laughs) so like what is like what is what is that space and and to the point that I'm I'm so I'm I'm disbelieved and it's like oh no um and I think like that pandemic for example like as somebody who has been like a lifelong introvert to a point Mm -hmm. of being like a secret introvert almost and, and again almost like disbelieved by folks, because, you know, when I am with people, it, I genuinely do love people. And it's an excitement and you just feel that energy. But then after that mm-hmm. energy maybe has been shared um, and celebrated and expended, you know, you definitely need to go and and charge your batteries. And, and so I think like that space in the pandemic um, to just to have like limitless solitude and, and what transpired, it kind of created a space to examine, okay, so what are some things and like behaviors, some habits, like what are some things that I feel like maybe I, that worked well for me in the twenty twenties that I could maybe lay down and well, mm-hmm. what do, what do I like, you know, right now? And I think that if you, if we don't have periods of self-reflection like that, we can really run risk of living our life in a sense that's automated mm. um, and so I just kind of started noting you know kind of through like happenstance like through you know they're really like getting outside was one of the main only things that we could do during the pandemic mm-hmm. um, yeah and just like just walking like I just started going on like walks around the block and then it kind of you know, evolved to going on about every trail in the city that I and and I even had a project where I was trying to go to every park in the city and mm, okay um, and just really noticing and like that was fun like posting on social media and trying to find like new spots in Anchorage and yeah. and just like noticing wow after I'm outside or when I'm outside I'm alive mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel really alive and how that might feel different than some of the other ways that you're kind of like you're spending time and so with that closer pay like paying attention it's like a form of like meditation of, of yourself um I feel like I started kind of like keeping a list almost like every time I kind of like felt alive I would just have I would just like write it down whether it was like in a journal or just like mentally jot it down and then kind of like at the end of the day after some period of of Doing that, you kind of look at like what that list is. So you pay attention, what makes you feel live? You kind of write that list out for yourself. And then you kind of look at that list and you kind of compare it with the life that you're living now. Mm-hmm. And at some point, when do you kind of like evolve and change your life um, to make sure that it is closer alignment with with that list? And I think it's just really important to do that every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Like for example, you know, I've spent I can't even describe, you know, the hours that I've spent on my laptop working on, you know, on, on projects like, you know, uh, passion projects, but whether it's through language revitalization, through essay writing, through, I just, I can't even describe it um, with my, my colleagues and friends, but, you know, how much of that, you know, at the end of the day was giving life too. And so I think that's why it's important to have those moments of reflection. What
1: is personal growth look like to you
0: yeah it really I think like it's that's also kind of like evolved um because of like the pandemic like in my 20s like personal growth was like was again, learning something, it was stretching myself, was achieving or growing new skills, Um, like having a a different experience and learning something completely different, positioning myself differently, like even like physically in Alaska. Like to me, Mm -hmm. that was a lot, that was personal growth. and, And I did, like I absolutely, absolutely grew. And I think with the pandemic, like personal growth can also be like quieter and noting like what it is that you value, you know, like you value in your interior life and and the ways that you want, like the ways that you want to be. And mm-hmm. um, one, one example is uh, again, along with like, you know, being an introvert, kind of like long-term thinking of, well, you know, the last 10 years I've really created a career with like external relations as it's called, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is where you talk to people for a living. Um, And, but is that something I want to continue, you know, in subsequent decades of my life? You know, I I love what I do and I love connecting with people. Um, but is that congruent with my own natural state and would I prefer, you know, in, in future and decades to come, you know, a situation where I had, you know, some, some slowness where I could like work on something or one thing, for example, um, at, you know, at length until it was done, mm-hmm. you know, and you mentioned a book, so maybe it's like something like, <laughs> like a book, and maybe, you know, I, I spend more time writing and kind of making that my focus in the future. And maybe that's something that will also really, you know, align with the, the person that I, f- I found out that I am.
1: Mm-hmm. When Mary Peltola became the first Alaska native to be elected to Congress, you made this great post, you said that something was shattered and shredded, as she was sworn in. I felt it inside me. And that thing is an echo that ever tells us, no, you can't. It feels like we can do absolutely anything. Do you still feel that way? I remember like, I remember
0: like what the sky looked like that day. Okay. like I remember like where the sun was. I remember the look of the clouds of where I was at. Like, mm-hmm that moment, that was just such an incredible, incredible moment. And I think the engagement on that post um, signified that a lot of other people felt really similar to that. And I I didn't know any other way to describe, you know, what that felt like other than shredded because of, you know, people use the word like ceiling. There's like this, you know, sense of like, limitations sometimes and she just absolutely absolutely broke through that and it is incredible to see someone that many of us know and um, somebody who represents so many of us uh, sitting in the position that she is
1: Mm -hmm. okay i have one last question for you what's left on your checklist
0: (laughs) Well, isn't that the funniest thing? You kind of create a checklist for yourself, <laughs> but then you check off the boxes. Exactly. So, so what do you, what do you kind of do with that? And, you know, I, I created this like guideline for myself of how I would spend my 20s and now my 20s are up. And mm-hmm. so I'm having that same you know same conversation with exactly exactly myself right now it's like well what does this decade look like like what is and do i want to frame it in that same way do i want to do mm-hmm. it like a, a, another 10-year approach and you know it really feels like in the, the arc of one's life and as i see it happen in many of our alaska native communities um you know like your 20s are are for learning and I think that's where that emphasis was, which just to like learn as much as you can, right? Your mm-hmm. 20s are for learning. Um, people know that you're in your 20s, it's no secret. Um, you can be very like capable, but there's so much to learn. So your 20s are for learning. Yeah. Your 30s are kind of like exercising the muscle a bit more. You get into your late 30s and into your 40s and that's where you see a lot of like top leadership really emerge in our communities
1: Mm -hmm. like
0: 40s into 50s um, and beyond and then you really see like that that age of mentorship too of like bringing up the next generation so that's the general arc of my life that's what my life will look like (laughs) Um, uh, So that's a sketch, um, but to the degree that I I can fill it out, um, I think in my 30s, it'd be excellent and interesting, again, just to like learn about the entire state. And again, I'm talking my personal capacity, not representing my employer or even really talking about my job, but I I am a physician where I get to look at every region, learn every issue area. So that's interesting. Mm and i think again like there's i've spent a lot of time working in language revitalization with my friends and friends who have become colleagues um but like spending time listening to myself and figuring out like well what what is it that i really want to spend time on and it really it does come back to like what we've described earlier um about that idea for like a collection of essays or or a book and i think that's that's probably why i haven't been like regularly posting it's like um like the sense of, I personally, like, like many people have, you know, like anxiety and Mm -hmm. um, social anxiety is is such a real thing. And like how anxious, you know, that like posting to Instagram regularly can be, or like posting Mm -hmm. regularly can be, but you know, what feels good is kind of like taking what it is I've learned thus far, you know, stringing them together into a collection and Putting that out there and letting that be that chapter of my life, and to the extent that it might be interesting or or helpful um, or informative to anyone who comes across it, um, that that's great. But I think I just need to do that for myself. Um, I think that's probably the one thing that I've ever felt like I actually have, like have to do before before my time is up, just for my own self. So. Mm -hmm. And then I'll write it. I feel like it's already written in my head. I just really need to work on that structure. And I've been, you know, engaging more in like writing community, like going to, you know, my first ever writer's conference. I'd never been to a writer's conference before. Okay. Yeah. And I took time off and did that. I went to the Catch McBee writer's conference this spring in Homer. And for me, that was like a very serious you know, signal to myself and, you know, those around me, like, this is something I'm taking seriously. And this is the direction that I really see myself heading in um, the next few years until at least this, this project is done. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, Cordelia, those are all the questions I have for you. You know, I want to thank you for spending this time with me and sharing your life and also your knowledge with me.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks, Cody. Thank you so much for reaching out, and thank you for like, um, inquiring about me like as a person. Like, I think so often, you know, we, many people can be approached based on like their careers or like you know this one job that they have or, or like their employer to speak through that lens. But like mm-hmm. we know that we are encompassing of all of our experiences that make us a person. And so, um, thank you for reaching out, um, just to talk like about people as people and I think that's really what makes your um podcast so strong and just to show the interiority of the folks that you interview so thank you Clean up
1: for more information about the Anchorage Museum visit anchoragemuseum.org this podcast was produced by me Cody Liska for the Anchorage Museum with additional help from Julie Decker Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.